Triple F Podcast, where we're focused on fashion, fitness, and of course food. This podcast is all about bringing these three parts of your life together to help you get the most out of your passions. We're here to help you look your best, feel great, and also indulge in some maybe not so hidden temptations. <laughs> we are by no means experts in any of these fields, but we do hope to bring people to the show who know what they're talking about and can help you with some of these aspects of your life. You only live once, so why not live a life worth living? On the show today, we have Andrew Bridges, the international man of mystery. <laughs> I mean, international man of art, as I should say. <laughs> this is a phenomenal guy I met uh, through an art gallery event. It's going to be so much fun on the show today. We're going to talk about art, fashion tips, standing out, looking good, how to hang up for some awesome clothing, how to find some absolute gems to add to your wardrobe, and a little bit insight into how to be a coffee snob. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Andrew Bridges. So Andrew, tell us what you do in one to two sentences. <laughs> oh, so you're making it easy for me, I see. Um, uh, basically, I represent international and foreign galleries outside the U.S. and help them talk about and sell their art here in America. That was, that was like one compound sentence, so I feel like that's pretty good. That's super interesting. Getting like involved in the art world just seems like an absolute blast to me. Just from the conversations we've had offline from when we first met, you're a world traveler, dealing with all these curation, exciting exhibits all across the world, um, going down to different countries like Hong Kong, Europe, down even to Miami, things that nature for the art thing. How did you really get into the art world initially? Was it something you were just kind of thrown into or what was kind of the story behind that? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's, it's a slightly convoluted uh, path, but uh, basically I was, I'm from Indiana, and I was living in Indianapolis. I made a few friends in the art world, and then I got a, a kind of an alert through a friend of mine. Uh, she said that uh, a gallery was looking for a gallery assistant. And so I went and applied with, with her reference, and I got the job. And this was just like as a gallery grunt. You know, it was my job to, you know, move paintings and fix walls and, and basically like all the little menial labor of a gallery. That was kind of my task. I did, I did a few administration things, but, you know, any... The, the gallery is very hands-on, so it was, you know, whatever came up or whatever needed to be done, you know, it was delegated. So I did that for about nine months, and then the director took me to an art fair. Now, art fairs occur all around the country. Uh, there's, there's probably about one, one a month. Uh, sometimes during busy times, there's about two a month. And basically, uh, a company will come in fill a convention hall with a bunch of temporary walls and then 60 to 70 to 80 galleries from all over the world will come into the convention hall, hang their best, uh, most, most recent, um, uh, most stunning art and for one long weekend try and meet collectors, sell art and um, basically have a great exhibition. And the gallery that I worked for, that was kind of their bread and butter. That's, 
they they specialize in doing art fairs, and they did a very furious schedule of about eight to nine art fairs a year, which is uh, orders of magnitude more than many other galleries participate in. Uh, and and there was my training. <laughs> uh, very very well. Well, honestly, like um, my gal, my former gallery director, he he wanted his staff to to know everything about the business. So it, basically, we had to be able to do anything and everything that came up. So I was kind of educated to run a gallery, and especially run a gallery at an art fair. So. Uh, after doing several shows with them over months, I actually got promoted to the gallery manager, and then, then well, then I kind of skipped the country for a little while. Um, I had the opportunity to travel abroad, uh, so I was gone for over a year, and then when I came back, I, I, <laughs> I was, let's say I, I took the best opportunity of my travels, and I came back broke. So I... Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, yeah, you know, it, it was. I, I was. I was trying to make the best of my time. So, and then when I got back, I, I almost immediately started working for the gallery again, and I worked for them for a little more, for a little over a year. Uh, for the first half of the year, I was kind of as temporary staff because I, I got another job, and then uh, at the beginning of 2015. I went to work for the gallery full-time for about half a year. And in that half a year, we did the LA Art Show, Art Palm Springs, the Affordable Art Fair in New York, um, Love Art Toronto. Uh, we did, And then we did two Hampton shows. We did Art Hamptons and uh, Market Hamptons Design. So, yeah, we did about six shows in that six months. So in the art world, putting together different gallery exhibits, traveling around the world, things are going to be different in each one, right? So like, you have different artists selling different pieces, uh, people are going down there. Um, actually, the way we kind of met was uh, you were a part of Art Basel through a mutual friend of ours. Um, you were down there kind of uh, taking care of a lot of art pieces, partaking in the show. Um, how, how does that kind of like separate out from different other shows that you've partook in? the past no well of course not um well and to be honest like so art basel is basically it's it's kind of the creme de la creme it's it's in in the art world it's what we call blue chip artists it is you you could kind of think of them as the modern day picassos and dollies they they are the people that are literally making the most amount of money from their artwork in the world um, and you know, uh, if for anybody listening, you know they might have heard of Banksy or Shepherd Fairey, um, other criteria, which is uh, Damien Hurst Gallery or um, organization. Um, and you know, there there are. I, I I mean, I could I could list you know. Uh, 20 or 30 of the biggest artists that will be represented at these shows um, but they might not mean anybody to someone that's not in the world or someone that's not in the art world and and that's kind of one thing that I definitely learned getting into galleries and starting to do art fairs is that it is this very specific 
world and community. And if, I mean, you can live your whole life and really not have any, like, n nothing will perk your ears up if you hear a name on the radio. Like, you, you won't have any reference for it. Um, but in terms of the people that come to art fairs, really it's very depending on the fair. As I said, Art Basel is, is blue chip. It's, it's the biggest, you know, most incredible artist in the world. And their work, even a print, you know, a, a print of 900 could go for $30,000. Um, an original work could go for a uh, hundred or more thousand dollars. So it's, it's, I think for the average person or the average collector or uh, the majority of collectors, it might be a little bit out of the price range, which is, which is fine. I, you know, I went to art school, um, very, very shortly and I grew up doing art and that's actually why I started working for galleries just because I did art. Um, but basically a lot of the people that come to art fairs are there to see the art. They're there to enjoy themselves and see something different, see something new and, and you know, see something beautiful and maybe see something that makes them question something, makes, opens up their mind, gives them a new idea, a perspective on the world. Um, a lot of, when I'm at an art fair, a lot of people will come up to me and ask, you know, what a painting means or what the, the artist's purpose was. And usually the way I start out is by clarifying that at, at the end of the day, all art is about communication. It, it might be, it might be complicated, it might be confusing, it might be so esoteric that it's on the edge of understanding. But at the end of the day, all artists are trying to communicate something. And, and that could be as simple as something uh, as, as the, the beauty of a sunset or the, the intrinsic philosophy of, of appreciating a flower. Or it could be something, as Ai Weiwei's recent exhibition was, understanding the Syrian refugee crisis through a gallery literally filled with pairs, rows and columns of refugee shoes that were discarded when they entered the country. So it's it can it can be it can be incredibly thoughtful and personal, or and at the same time it could be deep and philosophic. Uh, but I think I think for the majority of people coming to an art fair, they're coming to enjoy themselves. It's so amazing to travel the world and check out all these awesome artists, but I just absolutely love attending these art galleries here in Chicago or Milwaukee, and I just have, like going seeing all the same ones that like I just love to see every single time, right? I love exploring the new exhibits, I love checking out all this new stuff, but I always have like my go-to thing. Is that kind of how you are too? Oh, no, 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 I do the same thing. I, I have my, you know, I have my oldies with goodies at, at, my, at my home art museum. Um, in Indianapolis, there's an incredible art museum, the Indianapolis Museum of Art. And one of my favorite pieces is the Van, the Van Gogh we have. Um, and it is, it is a beautiful painting that every time I go to the museum, I take at least a few minutes 
I, I swing on by, I sit in front of it, I look at a different aspect. I look at the compositional style, the color usage, the layering, the, the direction of the brush strokes. I, I, I try and appreciate it for everything it is and maybe everything that I've just recently seen since the last time I saw it. So no, no, no. I, I think one, and the beautiful thing about art is even for a painting, maybe even a painting you own that you didn't even spend that much time on or, or that you didn't even spend that much money on. As, as you change your, your understanding or your perspective or your view of that painting changes. So even something that you've been looking at for 30 years, it, you, you learn something new, you go through a period in your life, something changes, you grow, and all of a sudden, a, a, some old, overlooked, undervalued painting or, or piece of art, photography, drawing, watercolor, whatever, can all of a sudden take on literally a brand new existence in your mind. So when you look at a piece of art different times, when you first look at it, it makes sense. Look at it a second time, it makes sense. How do you kind of go about actually learning something new every time? As you look at, if you say that you saw one piece every single time, spent a few minutes on every single time. You mentioned as you grow, things change. But how do you kind of grow as an observer to kind of really appreciate and understand the little differences every single time you see it? Oh, no, absolutely. Well, and and I mean, even, even for work I know, like artists I know personally, work I know or have seen or have moved and hung multiple times, I I still learn things about it all the time. I mean, I... Even even for an art fair, I mean, I literally spend eight hours a day, nine hours a day for days in a row talking about, looking at, examining, reading about, um, even discussing with an artist about a piece of work. And I have still learned things and been blown away by things after the fact. So, no, no, it's, it's, that's, that's the one thing I do. It's, it's actually kind of funny. People... I'll tell people what I do. You know, I work in art. I work in contemporary art. And, and they'll ask me, oh, oh, that's really interesting. Do you like it? And that, honestly, that seems like the worst question in the world. I understand it's, it's a question that people have understood to ask. And it's a question that, you know, um, you know, it's a very common question. You know, people might, you know, might be part of their standard, their grab bag of, of conversational questions. Um, but when, when I think about it, I, it just seems so ridiculous because if I didn't like it, I wouldn't do it. I don't, it's, I mean, wait, no, 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 I'm quite miserable at it. So I keep doing it because I hate myself. Yeah. I have, I have a severe problem with self-loathing. Yeah. So let's, let's get into some aspects of fashion. Obviously, when you're at an art gallery, you're a curator, you're at these shows, you gotta look good, you gotta look your best, you gotta stand out, really attract people who are possibly gonna buy it. So your fashion sense was so strong when we first met. Um, I think you were wearing uh, the, the awesome power blue suit when we were thrown together the, uh, the presentation at Mion's Gallery Praxis. Oh, the, oh, was I wearing the blue suit then? Um, 
Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, honestly, um, I'm I'm usually very noticeable. Uh, I wear I wear usually brightly colored shirts, and I don't I don't need like like it's not like I'm in Miami and I'm from the '80s. I'm not wearing like neon pink and and like lime green, but I I wear I wear lavender, magenta, um, royal blue. Um, I have a, a very nice teal shirt, uh, and. Uh, I get two of my favorite places are Express and 14th and Union. Uh, they make some great, very well priced, uh, bright dress shirts. And I and I actually have guys come up to me and they're like, "Oh, dude, I love your shirt. I wish I could wear that." And and of course they're wearing like all grays and blacks and browns. Um, and for like, I think there are many guys that can wear that super well. Like they do it well. But generally, I feel like maybe I don't know. I don't. I don't know if if I see a lot of guys. They just don't dress very well. They don't. Um, and and I think they dress as best as they or or to the best of their abilities. But in my mind, maybe maybe I'm just far too picky or critical. Um, but I. I feel like color or, or wearing color expresses who I am better. I feel like it's it's more true to who I am on the inside. Um, and and by wearing those colors, it expresses my personality or my desire. And and maybe maybe it's it's almost an outward expression of how I see the world. Uh, I don't I don't see black and white. I I don't see you know. The world filled with grays. I see color and I see brightness and life, and, and I'm I'm usually attracted to those colors. And and also, like if I wear a blue suit, I'm probably going to wear like a purple shirt or a red shirt. I'm not going to wear like a white shirt or or uh, you know a uh, a matchy matchy shirt. Um, I I usually. Like my standard, my standard daily wear is probably, you know, like slacks. Um, I even wear colored slacks. I have my favorite pair is a red canvas, and it's kind of like a maroon. And with that, I'll wear, you know, a lavender shirt, a lavender dress shirt, and then maybe a teal crew neck undershirt, uh, brown belts, brown shoes, red laces, maybe teal laces. And then let's say light blue socks. Um, and no, and I literally cover myself with color. And then uh, I have some, I have some very lucky finds of coats and jackets. Um, I have a really nice fall coat. It's just above the knee, long coat, navy blue uh, textured pattern. Uh, I got it from in Korea. I actually haggled a. Uh, store owner. I almost made two shop girls cry. Um, almost made two shop girls cry. All right, let's hear this story. <laughs> okay, so in Korea, it's very, it's very well known by the Korean public that uh, shop owners will basically gouge uh, tourists. So anybody that doesn't look Korean or doesn't speak Korean, they will jack up the price. And what they do is, you go to these shops, and they're basically like. From the outside, they look almost like an office building. 
and then you go you enter through these center doors and it's like an escalator's right in front of you and it's it's it looks like it used to be like a big department store you know it's just this big open huge room with an escalator right in the middle that goes up to the next floor um, but these rooms or these you know entire floors have been filled with booths and the booths are filled with every kind of vendor you can think of. They sell jewelry, women's shoes, jackets, jeans, you know, only jeans, t-shirts, jack, um, oh, just, just anything. Think of anything you could put on your body, and they have, like, a dozen booths for them. So you go to, like, the men's floor, and it's just aisle after aisle, booth after booth, just jammed with clothing. But none of the clothing have any price tags on them. What happens is... You, you go up to the vendor and you're like, you point at what you want and you say, oh, I'd like to see, can I see that? Can I try it on? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then you try it on and they might do this before or after you try it on, but they'll pull out like one of those big calculators from the early 90s, you know, with the big button, big screen, and you'll say, hey, how much? And they'll type it on the calculator, how much it is in the Korean dollar. Now, if you were Korean, or spoke Korean, the price would probably be lower. But if you're a white guy with blonde hair and blue eyes like I am, the price is always going to be higher. Um, you you might be able to get away with. I, I have heard of some friends that speak fluent Korean that they weren't uh, attacked in this way, um, but it's it's pretty common, and it's it's even very well known publicly. I heard a report on it on the radio about it about the price gouging for tourists. Um, so I went in and I basically haggled them to death. I started with a price. Um, you know, let's say the price was 180 Korean dollars, which is, I don't know, you, you could say it's comparable to like 150 US dollars. Uh, it's not exactly right, but I'm just giving you an example. Um, and I would basically be like, well, I'll give you 90 for it. And I just started about halfway down and I just argued with them. And the thing about these, about these malls or these stores, not even stores, they're booths or stalls, is that if you found that jacket, you could probably find three other booths on that floor that were selling the exact same thing. So I was just, you know, I'd show interest and I'd, and I'd, and I'd ask price and be interested and then I'd be like, they'd give me the price and I'd be like, well, you know, I'm gonna go look around, you know, I think I saw this in another place. You know, I just, I, you, you, you play the game. And, and honestly, I had to learn the game. I'm from Indiana, I'm not used to bartering. I'm not used to, like squibbling over prices. Um, we growing up, you went to a store and the price that was on the tag was the price. You never argued about it. Um, so I actually had to learn how to do this. It, it was not my upbringing. Um, but I'd like to think I've gotten quite good at it. And also, especially when you're abroad or you're dealing with situations outside the country or hell, if you're uh, doing anything on, on the coasts in New York or LA or Miami, you can come up with a lot of situations where the price is not the set price. It's a little bit negotiable. And, and sometimes it's a little bit, and sometimes it's more than a little bit. Um, so basically, the, let's say this, this coat started out at 180 and I got it for about 110. Um, that was that was after a long time and a lot of arguing and a lot and as I said I almost made two shot girls cry. Um, one one girl, 
they, they were they were just trying to do their job and and I and I was not berating them or being rude. I was just being very firm in the fact that I was not going to pay 180. Um, so yeah, I kept going back and forth and you know um, pointing out obvious logical things uh, like you know there were other people selling the coats. I could get it for less somewhere else. I don't have to buy it. I am. I do want to buy it, but I don't have that much money. I would, you know, I wouldn't want to pay that. Um, you know, just it's it's basically like everything that goes through your head. You just have to say it out loud. And and even if you're polite and nice and kind about it, you know that doesn't mean you have to accept an overly jacked up price. Especially for the fact that I know that all those clothes they were either made in China or Bangladesh for maybe five dollars and so that coat that was 180 was a little high priced so when you're dealing with Hagwind, you probably talk a lot about some tips and tricks on your own end right so if you tell someone in a Hagwind scenario oh i only have like a hundred dollars because they want to charge you like 120 or they want to charge like like there's got to be some tips and tricks to kind of get around that, right? Where you, you instead of like pulling out just like $500, like, oh, I really don't want to pay that much, even though you really could have, you just didn't want to. How do you kind of get around that? And, and that's the thing. Like, you, you pull out the wad, and the wad is not all your money. You pull out you pull out X amount, and you pull out the whole thing, and maybe you have a money clip, you know, to show that this is all your money. It's in the clip. Where else would it be? Um, no, there there are little tricks and things. I would do that as well. I would I would have an, a certain amount of money in my pocket, and I would have other money in other pockets. So that way, when I pulled it out of my you know front right pocket, that was all the money that was in that pocket. And and honestly, a lot of times that would work. Like they'd be like, oh well, you know, how much do you have? Oh, you have that much. Okay, we can make a deal. So it's, you know, when when you're in places, oh, and that, that blue suit that you saw me in, I got that, that started off as like $250 suit, um, which is which is a good deal, um, but I got it down to $100, um, and, and that was, that was in the wholesale fashion district of LA, and I will even tell you where, that was on 8th, uh, 8th Street, 8th Avenue, and Los Angeles Street in the fashion fashion district in downtown Los Angeles. Um, if you want a suit, if you want a super well-priced suit, poke around there, give yourself a few hours, you you go into a few stores, you find what you like, you ask what the price is, and then you ask if they can do any better. And you, basically, you just have to show them that you're interested, and you see how far they'll go. Um, I, I don't agree on a price until I feel like they've gone down a reasonable percentage. And and honestly, like most of the people, they will they will work with you. I've I've had great luck in the fashion district in Los Angeles. And I mean that's that's not the only suit that I've gotten for a ridiculous deal. And you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll they'll they'll make a deal, oh, you know, I'll, we'll do the suit and a shirt for this much. And then I'll say, well, what if we, you know, how much, how low could you go? And then I'll say, what if I didn't want the shirt? Um, so they're, you know, they're, they bought the, they bought the merchandise. They have the merchandise. They they want to sell it. Um, 
And and saying all this, I, I also don't believe in like gouging a seller. I know that they have to stay in business and they're trying to make a profit. But at the same time, it's it's kind of like the bar. You know, whatever they bought the alcohol for, they're at least doubling it. So even giving you 20% off, they're still making 30%. They're still turning a profit. So let's say you want to go haggle somewhere, right? So you're new to the haggling game. You want to go to something that kind of sticks out. You want to find some of these hidden gems that you're recommending and how to go about doing it. How do you get something that fits you well? I can like grab something off the rack and haggle with it and then take it home and looks like crap on me. Like to try it on, things of that nature. Um, you got, got any tips there? No, no, no. Well, well and, and especially in, in this day and age, a lot of times what you can do, um, if you can, like, let's say you want a new suit, what you can do is if you get your measurements, you can go to, to any tailor or any, um, you know, uh, tailor or resizing company, um, and you can get your measurements. And once you have your measurements, there are some websites online that sell wholesale suits. And they're not shitty. This is not like Rose Wholesale, where they're going to give you like the worst quality clothes in the world. But you can find these websites where you just basically dial in your measurements and what kind of cut you want, what kind of suit you want, and they will send you pretty much a tailored suit for you know two, three hundred dollars. So the thing is, you know, being a tall guy like I am myself, you know, walking around trying to look for stuff, definitely stand out. Only a few places are going to carry my size. Um, there's always these, you know, kind of nuances into shopping appropriately throughout, um, even in regular stores, trying to get discounts, trying to get some, like, hidden gems, things of that nature. Got any tips and tricks there? Well, no, I, I have the same problem. But, but honestly, I think it's a lot, it also has to do with a lot about knowing what kind of cut you have. Because for the longest time, um, I, I didn't really know, um, like, what, I, I know, I know what I liked, like, what I wanted to look like, but I didn't know what that equated to in terms of a, the cut of a suit. Like, I didn't understand that I wanted, you know, skinny or straight legs. I didn't understand that I wanted, you know, a modern waist where it was lower on my hips rather than higher up, which is a more traditional waist. Um, I knew, like I knew what I wanted to look like, but I didn't know how, I didn't know what that meant in terms of the cut of the suit that I wanted. And, and I think a lot of that is about like figuring it out. And I'm, you know, I'm a pretty contemporary guy. I like, you know, a skinnier leg. I like a modern waist, which is a low, much lower, sits lower on the hips. Um, and then I also like a modern um, suit cut. I like a modern jacket where it's tailored. It's small on the waist. There's a little bit more room in the shoulder. It's not baggy. It's, it's fitted. Um, now I do, I do have a friend and he loves like much more traditional, like double breasted suits. He likes a high waist. He likes a double breasted suit with a bigger lapel with a little bit more room in the sleeves. So that's his desire and that's what he likes. So, you know, I, I think if you do want to like get into the world of suits, you know, go to a tailor, figure out what you like. And a lot of times you don't even have to buy anything. You can just ask questions, like go to, you know, the men's warehouse or go to Express or something and figure out what, what suits you the best.
once you kind of find a, a cut or something like that that you like, how do you know what's going to look good on you, right? Like, you kind of say what your friend likes, what you like. As someone who's going out there and floating around trying to pick up some new styles, pick up even their personal style, how do they kind of know what's going to be a good fit on them? Oh, yeah. Well, and, that, and that's and this is like with me and jeans. Like, when I was young, I wore a lot of, like, baggy jeans. or And, and it's not because I specifically wanted to. It's just because I really didn't know you know exactly what worked for me and also it was like the late 90s and early aughts like I didn't know what jeans were or how to wear them or what styles I wanted um, but you know I'm, I'm when it comes to fashion I'm pretty pragmatic like I like things that stay on my waist I don't want to be pulling things up I don't want to be I don't want to be messing with my clothes at any time during the day. I want it to go in a place and stay in that place. I want my shirts to stay tucked in. I want my pants to stay on my hips. I don't, I want to know that my clothes are fitting and they stay that way. And then when I decide to take them off, that's when they change. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out like, oh, I can buy jeans that fit my waist where I'm not pulling them up constantly. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of that is also about like, you know, figuring out what your waist is and, and if that change, if that number changes often or not. Um, I know, I know a lot of guys, you know, their waist around the mid region can shift, uh, depending on what time of year it is or, you know, what their workout regimen is. So I think, I think it's just important to, you know, be aware of those things. And like now that I have like a really good, you know, three really good pairs of jeans, you know, I don't, I don't have to think about that for a while until of course I completely wear through them and destroy them because that's what's going to happen. So obviously, uh, there's a lot of background noise from where, where you're sitting. can only assume that uh, you're sitting at a coffee shop right now, because where else would you be? Art gallery, coffee shop, shopping, that's about it for you. <laughs> <laughs> and even on the back of your business card, it says coffee snob. So let's get into that. Let's talk a little bit about that. I do, yeah. Yeah, no, I really, yeah. Um, it, says, it says on the back of my business cards. Um it does say coffee snob. Yeah, that's a fact. So being a coffee snob, you must absolutely love things like Starbucks, right? <laughs> Tell me all about that, your obsession with Starbucks coffee. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know what? You know what? I win. I never had the first Starbucks. I'm, I'm, I've been to Seattle, but I've never gone to the original Starbucks. I would, I would wager that the original Starbucks was actually pretty good. I bet, I bet their coffee was well made. I bet their espresso was clean and not bitter and not sour. Um, I bet, I bet they had very good coffee. Um, but in the, in the machine, in the gray goo scenario that has uh, laid waste to our planet, that is Starbucks. Um, they, they, they lost something like a long time ago and that you just cannot rely on them for a good latte and and to be clear I'm a latte person I've been called out that I don't drink like straight espresso or straight you know drip coffee or pour over um, I do I do definitely need to, to the latte um, that being said I still feel like 
if there's something wrong with the espresso, if it's burned, if it's overcooked, if it's oversteamed, if it's overpressured, you can taste it immediately. Um, How do you kind of differentiate okay coffee to good coffee to great coffee? You're saying Starbucks kind of took a deep dive as they expanded. How does someone kind of know the kind of the differentiators of that? Um, well, basically, like, good coffee is not sour, and it's not bitter. It can be strong, but not in an acidic way, not in a caustic way. Good coffee is smooth and clean and, and refreshing and warming to the soul. Um, it's good, good coffee is... I feel like you always know what good coffee is because you're confused on what it's missing. It's missing the burnt flavor, and it's missing the sour vinegar flavor, and it's missing the burnt tongue. Um, good coffee is noticeable because it is so good, uh, because it's missing those terrible parts of shitty coffee. Um, uh, let's see. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give some of my favorites a, a plug, if, if that's okay. So, um, if you're in Manhattan, if you're in, if you're anywhere near a subway, I would highly recommend Bibble and Sip, uh, and it's spelled pretty much as exactly as you'd think. It's on, uh, let's see, it's on 51st Street between 7th and 8th Avenue on the north side of Times Square. And they have a llama as their uh, little circular sign mascot. They have the most beautiful clean lattes, and they do them reliably well. Um, and my two favorites, I am a sucker for a flavored latte. If you if you have a tasty thing to put into milk and espresso, I will I will want to try it. Um, for Bibble and Sip, their stars are the lavender latte and the spiced bourbon latte. Um, when I say spiced bourbon, unfortunately, no, it does not get you smashed. But um, as, as it was described to me, they take bourbon and they put a few German spices in. Um, and I could be wrong about this, but I'm going to throw it out. Um, cardamom, uh, nutmeg, cinnamon, ginger, allspice, you know, some, some nice warm German spices. They put it in the bourbon, and they cook it down, so you cook the alcohol out of it. So you keep that like warm, smoky bourbon flavor, along with the warmth of the German spices, and they basically make a simple syrup out of it. They add a little bit of sugar. So they make this beautiful, complicated, smoky flavor, and then they use it as a syrup in their lattes. So it's, it, and, and their lattes are just brilliantly done. The, the, the espresso is clean and smooth, their their milk is microphone. Um, one one way you can tell, like just right off the bat, if it's a good latte or not, is if you look at the bubbles and you can see the bubbles. That's not microphone. It's called microphone because you're not supposed to see the bubbles. If it's, if it's made properly, it's it's light and frothy, but it's not bubbling. The bigger the bubbles, the worse the foam is. It means they went fast and they basically like were blowing bubbles in your mouth. Um, it, it, it does not it does not make part of the point of the microphone is also the flavor. It helps carry the flavor of the coffee rather than just being bubbled milk. Um, also, if you burn your tongue, 
If you take your first sip, even after, right after they hand it to you, and you burn yourself, it's bad. It means they burnt the milk or they both burnt the espresso, one of those two or both. So that's that's always a sign that you've been given a shitty cup of coffee. Um, real, real espresso, real milk doesn't have to be that hot. And it shouldn't be that hot because then it gets burned and you ruin the flavor. Um, an, another thing a lot of people don't know about caffeine, why is cold brew always more, always stronger or more powerful than espresso? Do you know? It's cold brew because it's, no, I don't know. Is it? Okay. Well, well, cold brew, you can actually have hot cold brew and you can have iced espresso. It's not, it's not about what temperature it is when you get it, it's about how it's made. So cold brew is actually, they drip ice water through um, about a cup or more of coffee grounds. And it's one drip at a time. Uh, they have these beautiful elaborate setups, which look like laboratory experiments, of a large container of ice water and a dripper, a little nozzle that lets go one drop of water at a time, suspended over a container that's full of coffee grounds and then that drips into a larger container, and that's cold brew. And basically, you drip it all night, and the water very slowly filters down through all the coffee grains, picks up all that beautiful floral essence and the sourness and the, the strength of the coffee, and cold brew is, is very well known for being more floral, a little bit more sour, um, always lighter in the texture of it. It's always a little bit more watery, but it's always more caffeinated. And the reason is, caffeine is a very sensitive molecule, and it's very sensitive to heat. And the, the longer it's exposed to heat, and the higher the heat, the more caffeine is destroyed in that process. So if, if you want the strongest coffee you can get, if you are just a caffeine junkie, you find the lightest roast you can find, and you make a cold brew out of it. And you will have a coffee, one cup of coffee, that will keep you up for days. Caffeine back in the day was uh, obsessive. I mean, people were, like always take caffeine with their coffee at night, with especially for teachers sitting there, who knows what, like grading papers, things of that nature, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's called um, grading busy work. Um, now, I, when 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 you're up until 1 p.m. or 1 a.m. grading, you know, worksheets. Yeah, yeah. No, it's gonna take that long. Yeah. You need that. You need that caffeine just to be average. Um, yeah. No. Well, and okay. One one thing I would like like to throw out. Um, you're gonna be seeing this a lot more, and I don't know if I talked to you about this, but a friend of mine has a company, and they've been going through a huge amount of uh, marketing, and it's a brand new company, so I'm guessing no one has heard of it. Um, except for, you know, of course, the coolest members of your audience, no doubt. Um, but the, it's a Neurogum, it's, it's called Neurogum, and it's neuro, like neuroscience, uh, gum, and it's an energy gum. And it's basically a nootropic gum. Well, basically, nootropics are, they're a newish thing. They've been around for a few years, and they're, they're very big in Silicon Valley and on the West Coast. Um, but basically, they are um, chemicals, compounds, vitamins that are considered to have little or no side effects 
that basically boost cognitive function. Um, uh, a good example of these would be like B vitamins. Um, and basically, NeuroGum is um, a, a mint gum that is full of nootropics. And my friend Kent, he actually developed the gum because his, I, I like to say that, that his motto is that he hates to waste time. And for him, he wants to be up, he wants to be alert, he wants to be accomplishing something, doing something. And so he developed this gum very much, you know, for his way of life and for how he works so that he could be, you know, conscious and alert and active and, and also like not consume all this liquid. I mean, you know, with energy drinks and coffee, they're just, you know, you're drinking a cup of liquid or more. And, and with a lot of drinks, especially energy drinks, you're drinking a shitload of sugar. And, you know, not, not everybody wants all that sugar. Not everybody wants all that liquid. And so um, I, he developed this energy gum with nootropics in it so that he could chew a piece of gum, not have to drink all that liquid, not have to drink all that sugar, but also, like, you have minty fresh breath. Like, it's, you have, you're, you're awake from a cup of coffee without coffee breath. And, yeah, yeah, and, and honestly, like, I work in a, in a business where I talk to people a lot. I don't really want to have to worry about whether I have killer coffee breath and I'm bowling over the people I'm trying to have a conversation with. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with before we uh, sign off here? Sign off. Oh, okay. well, that that flew by, didn't it? Um, um, yeah, no, I. Okay, you or anybody else? Have you noticed I can talk a lot? Um, yeah. Um, let me think. So we talked about suits. We talked about coffee and New York. Um, well, no. Is is there any any question about what I've talked about from you? I mean. What's the best way to get a hold of you for our listeners? Um, you can you can find me on Instagram or uh, Facebook. I have yet to open up a Twitter. Um, I've been actually thinking about it, and I'm uh, starting a blog. And uh, as we talked about in the past, I'm actually um, starting to put together my own podcast. So um, that will not be about that will be about a, a kind of a much smaller field. So I'm I'm trying to put together a a contemporary art podcast. That's interesting that you were pursuing the uh, art podcast. I'm sure all the ones out there are just an absolute snooze fest. Yeah. Um, if for for anybody for anybody listening, like who's ever tried to find an art podcast, they are some of the driest, dullest things you can imagine. Um, it's basically like going to art history class. Like it's just an an oldish or boringish person that is. Let, let's say like you, you're talking about your teacher who had four cups of coffee it's like the same teacher who had no coffee uh, it's 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 almost like a lullaby so I'm, I, I I have the, the notion to change that um, but yeah no you can you can find me on Instagram uh, Andrew Bridges I want to say 583 and um, it's it's pretty easy to find me I'm the I'm the blonde blue hair blue-eyed guy uh, with a bright shirt um, as I've been referred to by strangers, uh, and 
Yeah, I know. You can you can find me pretty easily. Awesome. Well, that should be really exciting. We're uh, definitely looking forward to hearing that. Either way, Andrew, we appreciate taking the time to join us today on the Triple F Podcast. Thank you very much, JP. I appreciate it. Well, that was a fun show for sure. <laughs> Andrew and I have so much in common. I absolutely love talking to this guy. We could sit down and talk for hours. As you might know, there were a couple of things that he alluded to that we didn't get to. So, good news. We're actually going to put together a second episode with Andrew coming out next week. So sit back, relax, and stay tuned for the next episode with Andrew Bridges. This episode is sponsored by our friends over at StayCall. StayCall is a social wagering app for the next generation. With StayCall, you can easily challenge your friends to games of skill or even be a third-party judge between mutual friends. Stake your hard-earned cash, a night out in the town, or even just your dignity. They strive to be the most entertaining and most interactive social wagering platform on the market. StayCall is an app that you download on the App Store. Uh, right now it's on iOS only. Soon to be coming into Android, where you can challenge your friends to some fun games. I've challenged some friends to a game of ping pong. I've challenged some game friends to a round of hot wing eating contests. Right now I'm in the challenge of Movember. Things of that nature. Absolutely incredible. Ever have that friend that takes a bet with you and then the other word doesn't want to pay up and says, Bro, we never shook hands? No longer a problem with StayCall. You can put it up on social media, share it with your friends, get a third-party judge, problem solved. Check them out at stakehall.io. That's S-T-A-K-E-H-A-U-L dot I-O. Or go to the iOS and iOS store and download them. Stakehall. Check it out now. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Pod Directory, or SoundCloud. That way, you'll get our latest episodes sent right to your device when they come out every week. For reference, those are all linked up right in the show notes. While you're in there, feel free to leave us a review. If you do, all I can say is two words. Endless gratitude. Writing reviews helps us understand how we can improve the podcast as we all continue along this fun adventure in fashion, fitness, and food. (laughs) 